0: The other night I began speaking about the development of knowledge and insight that leads to the realization of Nibbana, or the unconditioned. And began talking about the first steps on this path, or the first steps in a progression of understanding and purifications that we all uh, go through. And I spoke about the preliminary practice of purifying one's conduct, speech, and behavior, and purifying one's mind by identifying, observing, and exercising restraint really, when the mind is filled with a defilement. And when, through our diligence and practice, we're able to keep the defilements at bay for a sustained period of time, which may only be, which obviously is just temporary, but it is sustained we're then able to really clearly see and discern the nature of physical experience and the nature of mental experience. And this is the first knowledge where we really distinguish clearly these are physical experiences that we have and these are mental experiences. And they are two separate and quite impersonal fields of experience that we become aware of. I want to continue this evening speaking about the next uh, couple of knowledges that emerge when the mind is purified of the defilements for a sustained period of time, though temporary, And there is this ongoing recognition of mind and materiality that understands that in each moment something arises in the mind and is being known. This is still continuing. This this is the ongoing basic Or basis of practice and the evolution of understanding, a more refined understanding. So the next knowledge that emerges when one has a sustained recognition of something being known, something being known, moment after moment, is we begin to understand the causal connection between subsequent moments. We see the relationship between this that arises and what follows behind it. Just to give you a very simple example. Pain or discomfort arises in the body. Quite naturally, it conditions aversion some sort of some form of irritation impatience anger self-judgment that in turn if unnoticed unrecognised conditions the intention to get some relief the intention is a mental state or a mental an impulse in the mind that arises and it in turn conditions movement of the body The movement of the body conditions a feeling of relief in the mind and the body. And so we can see the conditional cause-effect relationship between pain, aversion, intention, movement, relief. In all of that process there's cause and effect, giving rise to cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect. There really is no one there to overseeing the show, so to speak. There's no one in control of that. It's just you throw a ball in the air, it's going to fall to the earth. If it's rubber and lands on a hard surface, it's going to bounce. Same with mental and physical phenomena that arise due to their own causes and conditions. Well, this is not easy to kind of accommodate because. We want to be in control. We want things to be the way we want things to be and they aren't. But we can begin to see the relationship between conditions in the present moment and what we're experiencing. External environmental conditions condition what we feel, what we think, what we believe. We also begin to look more deeply or I should say inferentially expand that knowledge and we, what I call, we begin a personal history review. And we see not only is cause and effect happening now in this moment, but we see in the past causes giving rise to conditions or conditions giving rise to causes, causes giving rise to effects. And our whole life comes into view through the lens of understanding it as the unfolding of conditionality. (coughs) And we see, you know, we look back and we see that things that we did, things that we said, were conditioned by delusion, confusion, misunderstanding at the time. And now we see it quite differently. We see, well, you know, if I'd only known then what I know now, life would be better, or would have been. And this personal history review gets pretty extensive, as you probably have already noticed. And our whole life comes up for review and we get to see things newly. We get, we get to see how intentions condition results. Well, this is the whole unfolding of karma. We really, at this point, we begin to understand the law of karma. We see directly, moment by moment, the unfolding of karma. We see in a moment, intentions, which are karma, giving rise to results, pleasant or unpleasant, depending on the quality of the intention. If the intention is rooted in aversion, desire, confusion, the result is going to be unpleasant. And uh, you don't have to believe it. If you look at your experience, you'll see it. If, on the other hand, we're able to be with experience, with some understanding and some patience and not attachment or aversion to it, then you know that's it conditions an effect which is well the best it can be not so not so unpleasant (laughs) we point to this understanding in the instructions as I gave this morning when we ask you to begin to notice the about to moment in your mind. When there is an upsurge of energy and you're about to do something, you know, shift the posture, swallow, open your eyes, or scratch an itch or any, anything, we can see that, oh, if we catch that intention, we begin to directly and empirically understand that. The body does not move without the mind telling it to. Every movement of the body is because there is an intention to move it. Well, that that sounds kind of reasonable. I mean, that's not so far-fetched, really. But what we notice is how much we move without noticing the intention and we begin to see how much of our life is lived on automatic pilot. We're not there. Life goes on quite well, actually, and we're not there for it. We're absent. We're not making the decisions that directly affect our life. But we're not conscious. We're not aware of making those decisions. They just unfold. They just tumble out of us, out of deeply conditioned habits of non-awareness. We see this and we, and we get this feedback over and over again. So it's pretty disheartening, frankly. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty oppressive to realize, gee, yeah, this is really kind of sad, it's kind of depressing, it's kind of challenging, it's difficult, it's, it's no good news, as, as one teacher said. You know, self-knowledge is no good news. And we get it, we, we get it. That's not a surprise to us. We know. We see it directly. Yeah, this is really challenging. But once the momentum, or as the momentum of just being aware grows, you can't avoid it. You, you're, going to, you're going to see it. To not see it is just more painful. To see it is painful. To see it is dukkha. But to not see it, you have to really clamp down, not be aware, practice not being aware, that's just inviting more pain and we know that. We really begin to see that the way to be less pained in the body and the mind is to be aware, which is painful enough, but to not be aware is more painful. You know there are two kinds of pain. There's the pain suffering that leads to more suffering and it's the pain or suffering that leads to the end of suffering and it's as if we you know with our mind as we can with our hand grab a hold of something and we hold on and we're holding on to that thing for five minutes five days five weeks five months five years five decades and, you know, we're numb to it. We don't we don't know that we're holding on to this belief, this pain, this fear, this judgment, this intention that we thought was skillful and really wasn't, and we're holding on to it. Numb to the pain that it's causing us until we start practicing awareness and we look at this fist that's been holding on to something for a decade, or we look at this mind that's been holding on to something for, A decade or more and we realize how painful it is to do that and so we gently encourage ourselves to observe it and to let it go what you can imagine the discomfort of opening a fist that's been holding on to something numbly for even an hour let alone five decades and You open it up and it's tremendous discomfort, if not pain and stiffness and aching and throbbing. The grabbing on is pain that leads to more pain, more pain and suffering. The opening up and letting go is painful, but it is the pain that leads to the end of that suffering. This is what we're doing in practice. We are uncovering the holding in the mind onto an idea of ourselves, the justification for things that we did in the past that were unskillful, the sense of ourselves as being who we hope we are you know our personality and its shadow side which we don't see or don't want to see and we're opening up to all of this and it's painful you see it I'm sure you see it today how difficult it is to really look at yourself, to look at your mind, to look at your emotions, to look at your thoughts, your beliefs, your patterns, your reactions, your judgments, self-judgment, judgments of others, things you've done in the past and the, the regret, the remorse, the... It, well, it's pretty overwhelming, <laughs> you know, it's pretty overwhelming, but this is the job, this is the work of opening the mind. And we see it through the lens of awareness, clearly knowing something is arising in each moment. And luckily, there's the beginning understanding that it's just an impersonal process. Of course, we're very identified with it. We're very identified with our body. We're very identified with our personality. We're very identified with our sense of ourselves. And yet, this is, this is what we're doing. We're looking at that. And taking it apart. So we really come to review the karma of the past that has been so painful and the karma of the present that we're creating in each moments response or reaction to the way things are now and we really start to clean up our act we as painful as it is we don't want to do that again and so through seeing the past and the pain of the past the unskillfulness of actions in the past we begin to act more carefully we begin to exercise more restraint we begin to pay more attention we become much more sensitive to thoughts feelings emotions ideas intentions you know self self rationalizations justifications and and frankly can't fool ourselves anymore. Awareness comes with a quality of straightness of mind, where it just cuts through all of our self-deceptions. And we see things nakedly, honestly, in a way that's shocking sometimes and yet that's the quality of mind, that straightness of mind is what protects us going forward from self-delusion. Essential in practice to come to this personal history review, to look at how the personality was constructed through all of our decisions and behaviors and misbehaviors, and all that has been held outside of our sense of self comes into view all the shadow side of our personality comes into view and we see what we'd rather not this is this is just the path you know it's a, it's as impersonal as trees growing in the forest you know if the conditions are there they grow if you do the practice this is what's going to happen you're going to see this some of us have lived pretty good lives or pretty skillful not to corrupted lives and even that's challenging and some of us have lived have done done things that we regret or we have remorse over but actually when we see that kind of behavior in the past and we really understand the intention that causes the suffering and we have remorse for that that remorse is a skillful state of mind because we now recognize, we now see. And along with acknowledging the pain and not whinging, not turning away from it, not denying it, we affirm in our own willingness to look that we won't do that again or that we really don't want to do that again. And it will Come up as a reminder. If we ever find ourselves in the stream of momentum that's going to carry us to it, we just say, "Well, wait a minute! I'm not jumping in that stream. I'm not going down that road again," because we've seen it and we've seen how painful it is. So this is a very difficult place in practice, but it causes a lot of uh, a lot of thinking, a lot of ruminating on the law of karma. There's just a tremendous amount of recognition and ruminating on cause and effect and how we ended up doing what we did and where we are, where we are. And it just, you can't help but think about it. Once you see, once you get a glimpse, then the mind just reflects on it over and over again. Not only the past, but the present comes into view. And we also apply that understanding to the future we start laying out a different track for ourselves into the future with this new understanding of cause and effect and conditionality or karma. You don't have to believe in karma. If you see this happening you can't disbelieve cause and effect. So this is a a really significant uh, place in practice. And it's called the um, knowledge of discerning conditionality. There are a lot of uh, dreamlike visions that appear in the mind. We're not asleep, we're kind of awake, but the mind is just flowing through or flowing through the mind are just tremendous amount of wholesome and unwholesome visions. And when we aren't mindful, we get entangled in them, and as we are mindful, we just see them. But many of you have reported how there are periods of time in your practice where you just it's like you're daydreaming. You're not asleep, but you're not really mindful of what's going on. You're just in a dream, or it seems like and this is This is part of this this place in practice. There's also a tremendous amount of um, unpleasantness in the body, usually. Because we have uh, been avoiding, (coughs) denying, fearing, minimizing all of the holding in the mind, which conditions tension, tightness in the body. And as we open the mind, we are going to uncover deeply held, long time held tension in the body. I don't know anybody that doesn't experience that. As you open the mind, you open the body. And so a large part of practice is just learning how to be you know, non-reactive to physical unpleasantness. And eventually, you know, the body opens up and we we relax we let go and there's a there's a, a smoother flow of energy in the body but there's there's a period of time where it's quite a it's quite an unwinding the unwinding of the body precipitated by the unwinding and letting go of the mind so this is the law of karma coming into view, not because we're thinking about it, not because we believe it, or because we're challenging it, because we see it. We see it unfolding in our own (laughs) moment-to-moment practice. When this gets, when there's some ability to, again, keep noting all that, to keep, to begin recognizing more continuously that all of this that I just spoke about is still just something being known, something being known. For a long time it looks like it's me, it's my body, it's my mind, it's my personal history, my personality, it's my choices, it's my decision. But in time we see, oh, it's just something being known, something being known, something being known. And the instruction, of course, is to just keep recognizing what is being known and watch your reaction to it. When there's some momentum to that with all of this understanding of cause and effect karma, then we begin really insight practice. This is where Vipassana practice begins. Up till now this is not Vipassana practice, this is just... uh, it's awareness and understanding from awareness. But Vipassana is seeing deeply into the universal characteristics of the way things are. Remember the first night I read um, Mahasi Sayadaw's admonition in which he says at one point, constant mindfulness leads to insight into the causal relationship between mind and body which I've just spoken about. And then he goes on to say it also leads to uh, insight into their impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and their impersonality, whether not self-characteristic. And it is these insights which lead to Nibbana. This is where Vipassana starts. The insights into impermanence, the insight into unsatisfactoriness, the insight into not-self. Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta. How does this happen? Well, as we are observing all that I've been speaking about, we quite unsurprisingly see or begin to recognize that everything that arises passes away. Everything that you've ever experienced has entered, has arisen in the mind, and it's gone. You don't have to think about that. You don't have to read it in a book. But the understanding that this is the way it is dawns on us. And we see everything is just rising, passing away, rising, passing away. It's just impermanent. It's there, it's gone. It's there, it's gone. It's there, it's gone. It's there, it's gone. It appears in our practice, particularly in when we're noticing physical sensations in the body, your attention is called to some itch. and 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 you send your attention to this itch and you get there it's not there but it's appeared over here (laughs) and you turn your attention over there and you go get it over there and by the time you get there it has disappeared and it it shows up somewhere else and it's as if you are chasing around you know pain or ache or heat or itch or whatever it is and it, it can be maddening maddeningly frustrating because you can't catch it. Why? Well because your knowledge is now opening to the fact things change. Things are impermanent. Well this actually it's very unstable destabilizing. We like things to be really stable, secure, predictable, ever-present and it's not and we begin to see this and not only the itch and the pain and the ache, but the mind. Everything in the mind is also seen to be just as fleeting, just as impermanent, just as here and gone, as sensations in the body. Well, unfun, we might say. This is the unfun part of practice. Actually, (laughs) as we begin to open to the three characteristics. Impermanence is difficult enough, but dukkha, for those of you who know dukkha, you know the pain, the unsatisfactoriness, the vulnerability, this also comes into radiant view. This particular phase in practice has a, has a name. It's called rolling up the mat phase of practice. It's where you want to roll up the mat and go home because it's so unbearable, it's so painful, it's so unpleasant. You just want to, you know, it's very difficult to keep practicing because it's so painful. So we see that things are impermanent. We also see that things are, have the characteristic of dukkha. All, All experience has the characteristic of dukkha. And what does that mean? Well, it means that we see painful experience as just how painful it really is. It means we also see that experience is, well, unstable. It doesn't last, It, you know, the the, the the good sitting of the morning doesn't last till the afternoon. Or the good sitting of the first moment of the, you know, <laughs> the good experience of the first five minutes of the sitting doesn't last till the, you know, the middle of the sitting. And we begin to see this, not because we're thinking about it, but the mind is just really seeing deeply into this is the way it is. It's no longer pretending otherwise. It's no longer willing to deceive itself. It's no longer believing what it's been told by mom, dad, peers, and other well intentioned but uninformed people. In the text, they say pain and dukkha here is experienced relentlessly and the yogi feels like stopping practice (coughs) and going home. Good luck! (laughs) The other thing about opening to the understanding, the deep understanding of (coughs) dukkha, is that when your attention is called to a painful experience, and you go to it, and you note it, and you note it, and you note it, it's still there. It just lingers. Sometimes it just lingers and lingers and lingers. And you have to note it three, four, five, six, eight, ten times before it kind of fades away. And it takes a lot of persistence, a lot of persevering energy, and endurance, actually, to confidence, I should say, also, to be willing to just stay there with very unpleasant physical and mental. And we know this when. You know, some unpleasant mental state arises and, you know, we want to get entangled in aversion. We can see the conditioning that wants to just get upset or impatient and you just have to stay with it again and again and again and again. Well, this this is all strengthening of your awareness and deepening the understanding of, of this is the characteristic of mental and physical phenomena. Again, there are a lot of um, uh, when visions arise in the mind. And they may be personal history visions or they may be, you know, phantasmagorical visions. Movies you've seen or things you've imagined or Buddhas that you've you know, bowed to or whatever else. When they arise they can be very commanding of your attention. And there's, there's often uh, a kind of indulgence in uh, both pleasant and unpleasant visions. Underneath this growing recognition of the way things are, there's actually quite a lot of joy in our practice because we recognize, we're able to recognize that there is a momentum in practice. There is some understanding, there is some faith, there is some clarity, and there's quite a lot of concentration, and concentration brings pleasant experiences. And so, in the midst of all of this struggle, there is still a lot of joy in practice. There's a lot of enthusiasm in practice, even though it is still revealing these three characteristics which are difficult to accommodate. Vipassana means to see clearly and to see the inner characteristic or the underlying truth of something. As we open to these characteristics, we stop being so maybe fascinated with the content of our experience and we're more attentive to the underlying nature of the experience or the process of the experience rather than the particular uh, content. Impermanence, or Nietzsche, as you know, is that things are things are changing. What we couldn't have imagined before we develop practice is how relentlessly and how quickly things are changing and what we see is is the the rapidity in the mind of how uh, everything mental and physical is changing if it was just the sensations in the body and just the thoughts in the mind while we're meditating that'd be challenging enough But this understanding of impermanence grows in the mind and we look at the condition of our life in the past, in the present, and in the future through the lens of that understanding that everything is impermanent. And so even though our life may be stable outside of the retreat, when this understanding arises in the mind in retreat, Everything outside looks unstable, you know, whatever it is, relationships and finances and jobs and careers and, and everything we know about ourselves also gets seen through the lens of impermanence. It also gets seen through the lens of dukkha, how unstable, how unsatisfactory it is. Now, This is challenging. But what we're seeing is, we're really seeing this is the underlying nature of all experience. One yogi reported, when really opening to to impermanence, that I no longer know what to expect. (coughs) Sound familiar? It's like, we sit down, and if you're at all honest with yourself, you have no idea what's going to come up. As soon as you turn your attention to the present moment, you don't know. You don't know if it's going to be a good sitting, a bad sitting, a terrorizing sitting, or a blissful sitting. You, there's nothing to there's no way to know ahead of time. Things are that impermanent. What we learn eventually through the incessant arising, passing away, is to let go we learn to hang on to what we like or to hang on to some belief, to hang on to some memory, hang on to some pleasant part of the sitting, some pleasant part of the body, is an invitation to suffer because it's changing. And so this place in practice involves a lot of learning how to let go, both intentionally and mentally. Uh, not not just pretending and enduring, but really letting go and and, and really abandoning all hope for a better present and and, and just <laughs> because this is the way this is the way it is <laughs> one of the other things that we also have to let go of is the idea that we're going to somehow control our practice, that if we just try hard enough, we're going to be able to make it be how we'd like. It's not possible. It's not possible. We don't know the course of practice to begin with. And so to try to control it, what are we, what are we trying to create? Something that we imagine? And we see this. So learning how to let go, and learning how to be open to the next moment is the challenge at this, at this place in practice. In the opening to the characteristic of dukkha, as you know, I've mentioned, and many of you have heard the, my dukkha rap, dukkha has a few meanings and the first is pain. Dukkha Dukkha means the pain, the obvious physical pain, the obvious mental pain that we all experience. We try to avoid it, we try to deny it, we try to minimize it, we pretend it's otherwise, but at this point in practice we see it all too clearly. When something is painful in the body, because of the continuity of awareness, which is the collectedness of the mind or concentratedness of the mind, we see a tremendous amount of pain and can't escape it. We also see when the mind is filled with some painful mental state, a sense of loss or loneliness or ashamed, being ashamed or humiliated. or. Or any of the defilements that happen to arise, we feel it with intense exquisiteness, because the mind is very concentrated. It's the continuity of our awareness is so great that there's nothing diluting that di- diluting the experience. It's just raw. We're naked with that. The second. flavor or the second arena of the word dukkha is that because things change and forever unstable, our life is unpredictable. The good conditions that we are experiencing now are unstable and we don't know when they're going to change. We know they're going to change, but we don't know when or in what direction. And so we are forever living with this threat, just on the periphery of our vision, that things are unstable. The good that we experience now, the pleasant conditions, the security of all of the that we've constructed in our life, is vulnerable to change. And we know that. Look at the Middle East today. You know, nobody knew it was going to happen this way when it did. And our life is no different. And we begin to see this. We begin to see that all that we've done, all that we've acquired, all that we've patched together for our security is unstable. The security we've Feel dependent on things that change is no longer security and we get it we we get it it's not like we feel insecure we know that things change and we see this not only in our the conditions of our external life but we see it in the conditions of our body in our relationships we see it in the past we see it in the present and we see it in the future In fact, at this point you can't imagine a stable set of conditions in the future. Because you're living with this moment-to-moment recognition of how unstable things are. And your mind won't let you pretend it's otherwise. So, Opening to the truth of Dukkha is very challenging. There's a third Meaning of dukkha. Two flavors. There's the macro view, the micro view. The macro view is: you're born, your parents doing the best they can, and other caregivers take care of you for a few years. Bathe you, clothe you, educate you, cool you, kiss you, poop you, clean you, (laughs) do everything for you that they can so that you'll be happy. Because if you're not happy, they're not happy, right? And after a few years, they start handing you off to your peers and your grandparents and, and, and others, and, and eventually into the public education system and the government, and suddenly everybody's trying to take care of you until you learn that you have to do it yourself. Now you take on the responsibility of caring for this body and caring for this mind. Every day you have to get up. Every day you have to bathe the body. You have to groom the body. You have to feed the body. You have to sleep the body. You have to move the body or it'll be uncomfortable. And you have to keep it entertained because if you don't keep the mind entertained, it gets bored. And boring, boredom is really painful. Or it'll get depressed. You know, if you don't don't do the right thing, you'll just get depressed. And that's not any fun either. And so you've got to keep it happy. And you have to do this every day, over and over and over again, day after day after day, for two, three, four, five, six, seven decades. And we begin to see this. We begin to get it. This is exhausting. This is, this is really oppressive. And you know what? You don't have any choice. You have to do it. And when you feel the weight of that, without any filters, without any explanation, without any denial, without any pretending otherwise, now you're beginning to understand dukkha. Now you're really beginning to understand dukkha. It's not easy to keep practicing when that's what you're seeing. Not only is the momentary experience painful, insecure, oppressive, but your sense of yourself is painful, insecure, and oppressive. And your sense of your practice is also painful, unstable, and oppressive. Everything is seen that way. How are you going to keep practicing? You want to pray that you have a good teacher before you get to this point. Someone that you trust. Someone that you have confidence in guiding you. Because you can't find one at that point. Even a new teacher is going to look like dukkha. So you need a teacher or you'll stop. You just won't go. You won't go there. Because who can think that this is the terrain on the path to peace? Yeah, Peace, happiness, bliss, contentment. There's no, no view of that from, the, from this place on the path. But this is the terrain of the path. This is what you have to go through to, to, to get there. So you want to you pray for a teacher that, can, um, that has been through this, who can guide you. The second view, or another view of um, dukkha, is that we begin to see that in every moment, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind are being stimulated. Constant stimulation. Constant contact with sense objects. All the time. You might close your eyes and yet the vision still roll on. You might go to a nice quiet place like this and yet old concerts and old recordings just play through the mind like you know you're plugged into the iPod. And try to turn off the sensations that you feel in the body. We can't. You can take all the drugs you want, and you're still gonna feel it. When you get it, when you really get, this is what we're living with all the time. You know, a change of scenery, a vacation, a different a different meal doesn't cut it. <laughs> it doesn't cut it. You just have to learn how to tolerate it and really how to let go of all your reactions to it, all your fear, all your oppression, all your disappointment, all your depression. It, you have to let go. You just have to let go of that and just see this is the way it is. This is the way it is. But well, this, is, this is also a very challenging place in practice to really mature this understanding. But if you keep at it, we get it we really begin to see these characteristics without reaction and this this is this is the challenge of this of this place in practice the third characteristic which is insight third insight or the third insightful knowledge that arises is what's called the anatta characteristic the impersonal or the not self characteristic what we begin to see here is that whatever arises in the body, in the mind, is due to causes and conditions and it's not you. It's not me. I can't control it. It arises due to (sighs) causes and conditions outside of my immediate control. And yet, it's kind of like we're just we just along for the ride. Things happen. And yes, we can have intentions. Yes, we can <clears throat> make decisions and, and you know effect a change within a limited field. And there still is the unfolding of impersonal conditions. Well, the body, we know, is like that for sure. Mm. The mind is like that too and when we see how impersonal the mind is, it can, it can be a shock. It can really be a shock to see that our mind is not ours. Thoughts come into the mind that we don't invite. Or at least my mind. No. All kinds of emotions arise at the least opportune time. Can't control it. It just happens, and you see this. and And somehow, we have to accommodate that. Our awareness sees, this is the way it is. This is the way it is. You know, because it's not lying anymore. Mindfulness has this, as I said, this straightness of mind. It doesn't allow you to deceive yourself. And so you see, this is the way it is. This is the way it is. And until we let go of our fear. Our resistance, our self-judgment, our impatience, our shame, our humiliation, our you know self-pity, until we let go of that we don't really accept it. And so all of those reactions come into view and we get to see them, we get to work with them, we get to eventually understand another experience being known. It's just another experience being known another experience being known. Oh, it's just shame being known. Humiliation being known. Loneliness being known. Fear being known. Ugliness of one sort or another being known, being known. If we identify with it as my fear, my shame, my humiliation, my depression, my despair, my whatever, we're stuck. We're caught. We're identified. We're no longer seeing that it's just something arising due to causes and conditions, being known. Now we're saying, it's me! And the the awareness merges with the object, and we get identified with it. That's suffering. That's real suffering. This is the beginning, as I said, of Vipassana. This is where we begin to really see and understand impermanence from a direct and immediate experience of it. We begin to see and understand dukkha from the direct and immediate experience. And the same with anatta. How impersonal, ephemeral, insubstantial it all is. And we see it. I tell you all this not to scare you, not to oppress you but to try to offer some understanding of what it is you experience today because a lot of you are seeing you know these kinds of experiences it's not wrong it's not bad it's not bad practice this is the very course of practice and so hopefully the knowledge will encourage you to continue to just continue noticing taking note of watching your reactions to and gradually, although it's not apparent yet, strengthen equanimity. In time, unseen to us while we're going through this, equanimity is slowly growing. We're slowly learning to tolerate with less reactivity all that we see. The next level of insight that I'll speak about in uh, subsequent days really uh, will, will reveal uh, what has emerged in the mind unseen, you know, when equanimity arises and you really can begin to see things more clearly with less reactivity. But this is the understanding of, or the insight, knowledge of the three characteristics. And as Mahasi Sayadaw said, it is deeply understanding these three characteristics that is the doorway to Nibbāna, or the unconditioned. Without seeing these three characteristics, it is not possible. And I mean seeing in this way, very personally, directly, and coming to understand them that this is the way things are. So, please hear all this, and uh, uh, as, as information, you know, as part of the map, what you see on the map, knowing that this is the terrain ahead, but hopefully it'll allow you to feel confident when you meet this terrain on your journey. Lamiet and I have seen this, this this part of the terrain. You know, whatever you whatever you see, whatever you talk about, is not is not new to us. We've seen this. So if you need some help, if you need a guide. Well, that's what we're here for. So, let's sit for a moment and let all these words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.